Some of you may have heard, because it's been used multiple times, about the couple that had been married 50 years. And going into their 50th anniversary, the wife told the husband, we have got to get marital counseling. This is simply not working. So they go to the counselor, they sit down with the counselor, and they're visiting with him, and they're talking about different things. And the counselor finally looks at her and says, what exactly is your concern? And she said, I don't know that he loves me. The counselor's a little bit baffled and says, but you've been married 50 years. And she said, I can keep a commitment, but I don't know if he loves me. And he turns to the husband and asks the husband and said, well, what do you think about the fact that she doesn't know that you love her? And he leans back and says, I told her the night we got married in front of the preacher, I loved her. Do I need to repeat myself? We all would like a little assurance. My best friend, um, before he passed away, he and I trained dogs together. We hunted together. We did all kinds of activities together. And I'll never forget one time we were at the cabin at deer camp, and, and um, I was talking, and we were talking about the dogs and kind of missing them. We, in the 2015 drought, we had scorpions invade, and so we had stopped taking our dogs up there so we could get that under control. And, and uh, he's missing his dog, and, and we're just kind of talking about missing our dogs. I mean, yeah, I know what you're already thinking. You're at deer camp, and you're missing your dog, not your wife. Um, so, but the marital analogy doesn't carry over in this particular case. That's one story. This is a completely separate story. But as Ron's sitting there, and he picks up his phone, and, and he says, well, let me, just, let, me, let me just see how Sage is doing. And he picked up his phone and pulled up the security cameras. And he said, oh, Sage is on the counter right now. He had a security camera set in his house so he could check on the dog when he was away. Now, this is pretty cool technology. He then picked up the phone and said, Sage, get off the counter. And Sage jumped down off the counter because apparently there was some kind of microphone speaker intercom connected wirelessly. But he just wanted the assurance that his dog was doing okay, that things were okay. I mean, we all want it. How many times, maybe not everybody, but how many times do you go to your banking app and check the balance? As if it changed. I mean, unless depending on how much you spent or, or maybe you're seeing who else is spending out of your account. We want assurance. And so it shouldn't be a real surprise. If we want assurance in our relationships, if we want assurance in the daily activities of our households, if we want assurance in our finances and, uh, and our, our management of our resources, then it shouldn't surprise us that most of us want assurance spiritually. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that Jesus' death on the cross gave us eternal life. We believe that He has forgiven our sins. We sometimes have troubles forgiving ourselves, but we believe that He has forgiven our sins. But we want assurance. We want to be reminded, God loves me this much, and God, God is interested in me, and He hasn't forgotten me, or He hasn't gotten so busy or so active in other areas of the world that He is overseeing that he doesn't remember little me. We want to be assured. And that's okay. I don't think there's, I don't think looking for assurance is the same as doubting. There is real significant doubting, which if it goes to an extreme can actually become a sin because it's denying the validity of God. It's denying who God is. I'm not talking about that kind of doubting that needs to reevaluate whether or not the relationship exists. 
I'm talking about you and me each and every day going through the circumstances in our life, dealing with medical diagnosis, dealing with employment issues, dealing with family crises, dealing with everything that goes on around us, all the world, just making the mistake of watching the news and getting stressed out and just wanting to remember God is really here. And sometimes it's just not that easy to look over to my left, to look over to my right and see, yes, he's he's still sitting here because I can't see him. I just want that assurance. And in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, the apostle John tells this congregation, look, you can rest assured in your relationship with God. What Jesus has done has been validated You have gone through the process of making the decision and determining that that decision is a choice you're going to make. I'm going to know him. I'm going to be in a relationship. And you can live with a sense of resolution in your life because of that relationship. God is always faithful. We read that over and over again in Scripture. But sometimes we just want to be reminded that he's faithful, not in a generic or global or international sense, but he's faithful in my personal relationship with him, that he's there when I need him. I mean, it's it's that desire to be confident. I mean, we do it. I mean, one one of my OCD assurance issues is the vehicle. I don't know if anybody else does this besides me, but I get out of the car, I walk around, open the door for Carrie if I can, and we get ready to walk in, and I hit automatically, almost instinctually, I hit the lock button. I hear a beep, I see the lights flash, and I start walking. And I get get 15 feet towards the store or to the restaurant, wherever I'm going, and I got to hit it again. I'm so bad about this that once I'm in the restaurant, a lot of times I will get up and walk to the window and hit it one more time. Now, in case you're curious, because it's sitting in a church parking lot with no security guards, there's nothing in it. So, somebody stop that guy. He's leaving right now. (laughs) There's nothing there. There's nothing of value in it. There's no reason. But I just, I'm always, I, I doubt myself. I doubt my instinct. And sometimes it becomes so habitual that I don't honestly remember. Did, did I do that? Did I, did I take it? Did I, you know, did I, did I lock it? And so I keep doing it over and over again. And John just says, look, we don't have to live this way spiritually. God has made it perfectly clear when we're in a relationship with him, he has totally, fully, completely involved himself in our lives. So look at 1 John chapter 5, look at verse 6. These are some of those verses that quite honestly, if you're reading through your Bible, if you're doing your daily devotion, if you're going there looking at it and you're not doing an in-depth study, you hit a section like this and you sort of tend to lock up because it's like it gets kind of confusing and the words don't necessarily make sense. We're going to clarify some of that. But the overall purpose of what John is writing in his letter to this church is he just wants them to be assured, assured of their salvation confident of their relationship with Christ. And in every way, knowing beyond any shadow of a doubt that the most ultimate question about life, dealing with our own death, holds in store a resurrection and an eternal life. So the validation happens in verses 6 through all the way down to verse 9. He says that Jesus Christ 
who is the one who has come, and he begins what he considers sort of the testimony, probably thinking of the book of Deuteronomy and the legal requirements for a minimum of two witnesses, two who would testify that something is true, and in an absolute case, legally, three who would testify. He said, he is the one who came by water and blood, not only by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. This is about the part when you're just reading through this, it's, you start to start to bog down. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are all in agreement. If we accept human testimony, he says in verse 9, understand this simply that God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his Son. What John is saying in all of those words is simply this. God witnessed the validation of who Jesus, his only son, was from the very beginning. The descriptions we believe, Bible scholars believe, are moments in Jesus' life and moments in our life. The water probably references the baptism of Jesus because in that moment, God spoke. God visibly appeared to validate Jesus was his son. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that moment is described like this. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, literally coming up out of the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. God physically manifested himself at Jesus' baptism. And then Matthew records that a voice spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. At Jesus' first significant public appearance, Jesus submits to baptism, not out of a repentance, but out of a conformity to what's taking place and to validate what John the Baptist has been crying out in the wilderness for all people to prepare their hearts for the one who will bring salvation. And God shows up in that moment and says, for anybody who might be doubting, this is my son. I validate him, I love him, and I am resting on him while he's on earth. Because Jesus was both, as John's already talked about earlier in this letter, simultaneously man and God while on earth. The reference to the testimony of the blood is probably a reference to Jesus' death. And you have a similar instance at Jesus' death as you do at his baptism. God physically manifests himself in supernatural power, and God, in that moment, testifies through people. This is how Matthew, same author, describes that moment in chapter 27. He says, when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus, this is at the crucifixion of Jesus, and Matthew has this in-person account. As they were watching over Jesus, they saw the earthquake and the things that had happened. And they paused for just a moment. Parenthetically, what were the things that had happened? Three supernatural events happened at the death of Jesus. The first was about noon, supernatural darkness came over the whole earth. Not an eclipse, not a cosmic event, but a supernatural event where God shrouded the earth in darkness. 
And Jesus' crucifixion is taking place in what appears as nighttime. We can assume that it is more than nighttime because it is a supernatural darkness. So it's not like the sun disappears and suddenly you can see the stars and you can see the moon as you would any night that you walk out in your yard and look up. This is a supernatural darkness, unexplained, never happened before, hasn't happened since. At that same moment, simultaneously, an earthquake took place. And in that moment, several things began to happen supernaturally. There was a veil. There was a very thick curtain that separated in the temple the absolute holy of holy place where God's Spirit dwelt and the rest of the temple where people could come and offer their sacrifices and their worship. And in that moment, that veil was torn in two. That veil was completely removed, literally symbolizing and showing us the openness that is now available through Jesus' death to having a relationship with God. And the earthquake not only shook the ground, but it shook the ground in such a way that simultaneous mass resurrections took place. You could walk out to the cemetery on the afternoon that Jesus died and see your loved one again. Now, I know, sounds like Call of Duty zombies, but it's not. It's a supernatural moment when God resurrected people to testify that this is his son and that his death had significant supernatural consequences, which would ultimately be our life. What was the centurion's response? As he was watching over Jesus, as they were standing there in the earthquake and the things happened and they see these things take place, they were terrified. And they said in their terror, truly, this man was the Son of God. By water, by blood, and by spirit. The third testimony is today. It's what you sense in a moment like this or maybe while you were singing, or maybe as you arrived, or maybe while you're on live stream with us and you're in this moment watching, and something in your heart, something somewhat unexplainable begins to resonate. And you begin to think, this Jesus may be real. This Jesus may really be able to forgive me of my sins. This Jesus may actually be able to create for me the absolution and the hope and the cleansing and the new life and a second chance that I deeply want. It's not just that your mind is working and geared in that way. It is that literally God's Spirit is available to mankind today, lives in the hearts of believers, so He's already residing inside of us, and He begins speaking to us. And He's telling us, Jesus is real. Forgiveness is possible. Eternal life is available. If you've not experienced that before, it can be a little unnerving. About a week before I became a Christian, I was going back and forth. I had made Christian friends who were telling me about this life-changing relationship in Jesus. I was trying to understand it, but I was still running with old friends that had nothing to do with Jesus. 
And I was at one of those events where people were gathering and lots of activity was taking place. And, and it was a very unusual experience. And I'm, I'm not real big into these experiential things. You can, you know, hold on to that so much that you forget to just simply use your mind. But for the first time in that moment, I had this realization that I wasn't, and this may sound kind of funny or kind of humorous, I just wasn't as good or a great a person as I thought I was, and I wasn't as strong or as capable as I thought I was. And it was almost like in my head, this movie began to play out. And I began to see mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. Bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. Bad relationship after bad relationship after bad relationship. And in that moment, not in a depressed fashion, not, not, in, this, not in this fashion that was like burdening me down and weighing me out and saying, you, you're a worthless person. In that moment, I somehow recognized a thought that I had never had before, that I was a person of worth who had intentionally, by my own actions and decisions, ruined my own value. And I wanted a remedy for it. And some of you have heard this story because I've told it a lot. That event happened, and I spent the next week contemplating, what am I going to do with that? Listening to my new Christian friends telling me that Jesus could do something about it, but me not being absolutely, completely sure that Jesus would do that on my behalf. Easter weekend, and we went on campus where they did movies on Friday night. So for a week from that Friday night to this Friday night, I've been trying to figure out what to do with what was recognized by me in that moment as a life that was unsatisfactory and unfulfilling. When the movie that night at the student center was Ben-Hur, the classic movie, the book was actually written for the singular purpose of helping people understand who Jesus is. During the movie, because I had not read the book at that point in time, there's a scene in the desert, and Ben-Hur himself has been taken captive by the Romans. He's in prison. He's in basically a chain gang, and they're traveling across the desert. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's dehydrated, and he falls, and he stumbles. And a man walks up to him, and I can never tell this story without crying. A man walks up to him and hands him a cup of water. And the Roman guard kicks it out of his hands. Now, I had never intentionally thought about what Jesus looked like, and I have no idea to this day what Jesus looked like. But I had seen enough artist renderings in my lifetime that I recognized in the movie without dialogue to tell me so that the man who gave him that cup of water, attempted to give him that cup of water, was Jesus. The movie plays on for another two hours. It's a long movie. Jesus, this time, is carrying his cross up the road to Calvary to the place outside of Jerusalem where he'll be executed. He stumbles under the weight of the cross, the blood on his back and the dirt and the smear and the thorns on his head. And Ben-Hur, who had been touched by his kindness, attempts to give Jesus a cup of water. 
Now, I cannot explain it to you. It's more than cinematography. It is more than a script. It is more than quality acting. But when that moment happened and Ben-Hur attempted to give Jesus a cup of water and that cup is swept out of his hands by the centurion, Jesus denied the water, I knew. I knew that Jesus could solve the problem that I had seen the week before. And 24 hours later on Saturday night, I would quiet my heart and pray, dear Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Change me. And I believed he would. Every moment like that was the Holy Spirit testifying to me. Jesus is real. Jesus is a part of your life. Jesus is here. Jesus will forgive you if you will trust him. And in a little over a month, I'll celebrate that birthday. Multiple decades later, living with unwavering assurance because God validated in Jesus' historic baptism, in Jesus' historic death, and by the presence of his Holy Spirit speaking to my heart that that life and death and ultimately resurrection were for me. Because as it describes in verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. And I believed in Jesus. There was that moment of determination. I had to make that decision. Nobody was going to make the decision for me. The friends who so desperately wanted me to become a Christian couldn't make the decision for me. Attending church wasn't going to make that decision for me. Going through some formula or some ritual wasn't going to make the decision for me. I couldn't have somebody else make that decision for me. My family couldn't make that decision for me. Nobody could make that decision for me. The determination was all mine. I had to believe that that testimony of Jesus that had been validated by God needed to become my personal testimony and the Son of God would live in me. And when I prayed, dear Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. Give me a new life. God heard that prayer, answered that prayer, and became a part of my life in that moment. But the choice was mine. The decision was mine. Determination had to be mine. And I had complete freedom, and John recognizes that. In the second part of verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe. And in other words, if you take what God has validated and say, nope, it's not for me, I don't want anything to do with it, then you make God's testimony, you make God's witness about what he did through his Son a falsity. You have made God himself a liar. Because he, he has not, this one who refuses to believe, has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. The very serious nature of this is obvious and clear. To refuse to believe in Jesus is to say that God himself is a God of deception, untruth, and lies. 
and I don't want him in my life. But it's still your determination. I could have just as easily on April 21st that year, I just as easily could have said, nope, I am in this for myself. I don't want anything to do. I am thankful that I didn't and grateful to this day that I didn't. And I'm here with you today, this morning, because I didn't, but I could have. And that's why nothing we can do can force or coerce that decision. You must make it yourself. And I think partially deep down inside, because God knows how he knitted us together and how he created us in his image. And he wants us to have the freedom to trust in him and to know him and to love him freely. And he wants us to have the freedom to reject him and call him a liar and have nothing to do with him. He gives us that choice because he wanted us to be free creatures, to know him out of love, not out of coercion or obligation, to know him out of intimacy, not out of ritual or religion, to know him in a personal fashion, not esoteric or academic, but to know him. And then that's where the assurance comes in. If you believe what God has already validated and you determine in your mind and in your heart to trust in that, then the simple resolution is that in this testimony, verse 11, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Look at verse 12, circle it, mark it, highlight it, make a point to memorize it. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you or I doubt this week, just ask ourselves the statement that verse 12 sets apart. Do I have the Son or do I not have the Son? Have I seen God's evidence of life in my life at some point in time? And if I have the Son, I've always got the Son. Maybe this moment is hard. Maybe this moment is difficult. Maybe this moment stretches my faith. Maybe this moment feels like it'll break my faith. But if I had the son last week, I've got the son this week. And if I've got the son this week, I'll have the son next week. Because it's as simple as that relationship. You either have or you don't have the son of God in your life. And if you have the son of God in your life, you always have the son of God in your life. And if Jesus is in your life, then the power of his resurrection and the hope of his eternity is always there. And I don't have to see it every day to believe it because I have the Son and I have the life. And I am resolute about that. I am absolute about that. It doesn't make me perfect by any stretch of the imagination. It doesn't make life easy by any stretch of the imagination. But I never walk this life alone. And I will not walk eternal life alone. The man who created and invented and discovered chloroform came to the end of his life receiving numerous medical accolades and recognition and knighted by the Queen of England. 
And in his last moments, in his last breaths, a friend, another doctor, came to his bedside and said, Sir Simpson, at any point, do you have speculations about what is ahead? Now remember, this is a scientist, a medical doctor. He spent his whole life speculating, questioning, analyzing, discovering. And in the very last moment before he leaves this life and moves into the next, a close friend and colleague says, do you have any speculation about what's next? And his response was simple. He said, speculations? None. And he quoted from 2 Timothy, but I am not ashamed. Because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he who is able to guard me and guard what is entrusted to me until that day. A whole life speculating, questioning, but at the moment of death, no speculations, but I know whom I have believed and have been enabled and entrusted to keep me until that day. If you have the Son, you have the life.